Matthew Wiggins is the co-founder and senior advisor at Pattern, a life and disability insurance company that caters specifically to the physician community. Today, he teaches us about disability, and despite there being a pandemic that is putting us at higher risk, because of the shelter-in-place orders, it is actually easier to get disability. We discuss this, as well as why disability is so important, why he rarely sells short-term disability, when it's okay to drop your policy, and the rate of disability for physicians versus the population at large. Mr. Wiggins has spent the past 10 years educating and advising over 6,000 physicians across the country. He has been invited to speak at many major medical training institutions like Kaiser Permanente, Mayo Clinic, and Johns Hopkins, and he's provided educational webinars to thousands of doctors through the years. Doctors who attend these sessions say that the emphasis on what Matt calls physician practical wellness impacts how they view and handle searching for jobs, signing contracts, and staying on top of their personal finances. As a full disclosure, he's a sponsor of this episode and a few others. But I didn't pull any punches in the interview, and if you're looking for social proof, just go to his website. He has the support of some of the biggest names in the physician finance space. So check him out at patternlife.com slash partner slash PGD. That's patternlife.com slash partner slash PGD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Shopping for disability insurance can be complicated and time-consuming. Wondering if you're getting the best prices and discounts while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. Pattern believes doctors have more important things to do than spending hours sorting through numerous insurance options. This is why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the insurances that they are buying. They do this in three simple steps. First, request your quotes online. Second, Compare your options and ask questions. And third, apply risk-free. Be confident you have the right policy so that your income is protected. With discounts for doctors and training and some relaxed requirements during the pandemic, now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at patternlife.com slash partner slash PGD. Again, that's patternlife.com slash partner slash PGD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Matt Wiggins, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's ask the big question first. Why even get disability insurance? Why is disability insurance so important? That's a, so that's a great question. And I'd have to say out of the 7,000 plus doctors I've worked with on disability insurance, that one comes pretty familiar to me anyways. And I think I've thought about it in multiple ways in the past. You know, sometimes I would communicate it like this is disability insurance because it, it basically protects your income. You know, if you get disabled, you can't work, uh, an injury or illness causes that, and you can't work, can't earn your income, it replaces that. So it's protecting your income. So I, I talked about it in terms of it's protecting your largest financial asset. You know, your future income as a doctor is your largest financial asset. And I think that connects with some doctors and some it doesn't. And then, you know, I, I said, well, it's protecting the investment you've made in your career. Because the return on your investment, you know, all the blood, sweat, tears, money, time, everything you've invested to become a doctor in your specialty or subspecialty, I mean, the return on that is 
the income you're going to earn over the course of your career. So protecting the return on your investment. And there's some doctors who geek out on investments. They really like that terminology. But, but recently, I've really been thinking about it in terms of if your income's not protected, what really is? And, and what I mean by that is I, I really did kind of some deep thinking and some reading and study. And I was trying to think through what what part of our life is not impacted by our income? And you think about obviously things like saving for retirement, kids' education funding, obviously your current lifestyle, housing, whatever it is, that, that's all funded by your income. But when you think about things like uh, even, even marriage and family, you know, the number one cause of divorce in America uh, is financial issues. And so it touches on relationships. It touches on the legacy you want to leave behind, that you can leave behind, investing in other things that you believe in. So I really think the way to think of disability insurance is if you don't take that, at least that foundational approach to protect your income, which drives pretty much everything else in your life, what really is protected. So that's why we think it's super important. How much of your income really needs to be protected? Like, how do you make the decision on how much to get? Because ultimately, it's a gamble, right? In order to mm. replace all of your income, you have to get a substantial amount of disability insurance. So then you're foregoing some of your income in order to insure yep. it, right? So how, how do we arrive at that calculation? How do we decide how much disability insurance to get? Well, I would say, obviously, it depends on the situation that you're in. If you're coming out of school and you're coming out of residency and you've got $250,000 of debt and you're starting out with a $300,000 salary as a general cardiologist and, um, you know, you, you really don't have anything else, you have no savings, you have nothing. The answer early on is you really want to get as much coverage as you can, uh, because when you think about it this way, let's say that for the average male, it costs between one and three percent. Uh, of your pay to protect 60% of your pay. And, and it's tax-free, so that's really protecting your after-tax take-home pay. And then let's say that for a female, sometimes they're 2 to 6%, but with discounts, especially when you're younger, it could be down to that, you know, 2 or 3%. So a lot of times we think through early on in your career, is it better to take home 97% of your pay to protect 60% of it if something unforeseen happens? And I think the answer is yes early on, especially with the numbers out there. Something like 20 to 25%, depending on the study, of all doctors will get disabled and need to use a disability policy throughout their career. You never know if that's early or later. Of course, it's more later. Um, but you just don't know. Now, as you get older, and let's say that you've made it through your career, you're in your 50s, you've got $2 million sitting in the bank, and no debt, you're in your house, your kids are out of the house, you're probably looking at a situation where you're making a calculation. Do I want to just self-insure? Or is it still worth paying this amount of money I locked in some time ago so that if something happens, I don't have to rely on my investments and whittle them away? Or do I want to do it partially or 25% of my pay or whatever? So it really comes down to what could you live off of? What phase of your career are you in? What obligations do you have that you need to meet? And, and yeah, just a comfortability level. What could you live off of and still save for retirement and be comfortable with that? Right. I guess as you get further into your career, as you get older, it becomes more likely that you would end up utilizing the disability insurance, but you don't need it as much. Whereas when you're younger, you need it more because you don't have any savings, you've got all this debt, but you're less likely to become disabled. So it's uh, it's got to hit like an inflection point, I guess, at some point. But I guess 
very early on in your career, it's all the more important to have it because you're so vulnerable. Well, and and we're we obviously help doctors get disability and life insurance, but we're not the, we're not the kind of people that say you should buy as much insurance every time, all the time, and keep it forever. I mean, the truth is that we don't need to insure things that we can protect for or protect against ourselves efficiently or effectively, but we do need insurance for things that we can't protect against. And so, like I said, if, you, if you're older, you're down the road, you've you got money, no debt, you know, and all this stuff, if you could protect yourself, if you could retire at this moment and be able, you could live off your savings to that point in time, then you're right. You really don't need disability insurance. You've, you basically are self-insuring at that point. But if it's early on, you've got debt, it's, you know, you're getting paid uh, probably lowest income you will for your career because you're early in your career um, and you don't have any savings built up, then absolutely it would be dire if you got disabled and could not work, could not earn income. And so that's, you know, that's what you insure again. You mentioned earlier the rate of payout for disability insurance for physicians. What, what, what is that number again? So it's pretty high. In fact, disability is one of the most likely things you insure against. So that's why when doctors come to us and say, whoa, this number seems big for premium. It's 2%, 3% of my income. The, the statistics are out there. So the insurance companies say, and it depends on which one you talk to, it say, they say between one in five or one in four doctors, or I'm sorry, workers in the U.S. will get disabled during their career to where they have to use disability policies. So I went back to those same executives at the insurance companies and said, hey, can I, can I say this is true for doctors or is it worse or is it better? And they said doctors fall right in line with the general public. Uh, you know, out there in the general public, there's some occupational, you know, situations where they get disabled more frequently and there's some that are less. Doctors are kind of right in the middle. So you can pretty much say that from a, a doctor in their 30s until they're in their 60s or around retirement age, that they've got between a 20 and 25% chance of being disabled and actually using some of their benefit. Now, those disabilities aren't always permanent. In fact, the average disability is, is two years long. And so what that consists of is a lot of six-month, 12-month, 18-month disabilities, you know, maybe 50 of those, and then one 30-year disability where the doctor gets disabled at 35 and you know, is disabled permanently to get paid, gets paid till they're 65. So a lot of short-term disabilities where doctors recover, go back to work, but they're still looking at you know, needing six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years of, of payments. So what qualifies as a short-term disability? Like when you have different plans, right? You have a short-term disability plan, you have a long-term disability plan. What qualifies as a short-term disability and what's a long-term? Well, what's interesting about short and long-term is the definition of disability is pretty close. They're, they're pretty much going to say, if you have any injury or illness that's not self-inflicted, so they're, they're not going to pay you if you go out and you hurt yourself so that you can collect, right? They're going to investigate that. But if it's any injury or illness that's not self-inflicted, then they'll consider that a disability and they'll, they'll pay you out a claim if you can't do your, your job. Short term just means that they're typically, this is typical, there's some variations, but typically they're paying you from the end of the first week of a disability and then they pay you pretty much weekly until you reach three months. Because at three months or 90 days in the long-term disability uh, world, 90 days is the waiting period for most disability policies. So once you've gotten to that 90th day, that next month is when they're going to send you your first long-term disability check, and that pays out monthly. So the short difference between short and long-term is just what period of time that they cover. Is there a difference in the rate of payout for short versus long-term? So typically, short-term pays out a little less. They pay weekly. No, no, I'm sorry. They, I meant uh, frequency of payout. 
Like, oh, how, how often, often yes, you end yes, up yes. collecting short-term disability versus long-term. Yeah. Well, I, you know, obviously when, when people have injuries or illnesses or anything like that, they're a lot more likely to be disabled for 30 days or 60 days. Let, you know, uh, that's probably, that's definitely more frequent than a, you know, three-month, six-month, 12-month disability. So it's a great point. I mean, short-term disability insurance is something that's especially helpful if it's provided by an employer. Um, we typically don't recommend doctors buy short-term disability insurance. And I, that may be shocking to some, but when you really think about it, they're, it's protecting these three months. And most doctors, except for the first few months whenever they get out of, out of uh, their training programs, most doctors should be able to have an emergency savings plan where if they need to make it through three months, even if they got to put some money on a credit card or something, I mean, they can get through three months. So that goes back to the whole idea of you you don't insure what you can insure yourself by simply having enough savings around to live off of. Once you get past that three months though, and you head into the fourth month, fifth month, sixth month, 12th month, you, you, know, you start really extending that. That's when it's really hard to be able to save enough to be able to compensate for that. So we're big believers in saving your own money. Um, sometimes short-term disability costs about as much as long-term disability insurance, and they're just protecting that three months. So we recommend most doctors save for that short-term kind of catastrophe and prepare yourself for that. But for the thing you cannot insure against um, for most of your career, like a two-year disability, you know, have the insurance. I... Uh... I need to reconsider my my own disability situation because I personally was convinced to get short-term disability. And the rationale was, listen, you're much more likely statistically to have a short-term disability than a long-term disability. So you should definitely have short-term insurance because you're more likely to need it. But yeah. to your point, I should also have enough in savings that I can withstand a short-term disability without needing the payout. So I'm ultimately self-insuring. That, right. Yeah, and, that and you know, this comes, from, this comes from seeing so many different scenarios. And I'll just say, this is obviously blanket advice or thoughts. In certain situations, that may be a good idea. But, you know, we would look at a, a premium for a short-term disability policy that would be $150 or $180 a month. And then we'd look at a long-term disability policy that covers from the end of three months all the way until a doctor's 65 or 67, and it would be $190 a month. And, you know, we're just sitting there going, I, I think you're better off in self-insuring that first three months, saving, don't give that $180 a month, 150 bucks a month, don't give that to an insurance company, just save it. And uh, before you know it, you're, you're protecting yourself against something that likely won't happen. But if it does, you've got it. And if, the, if it goes past that three months, though, then you've got the insurance protecting against that. So, you know, yeah, something, something to think about for sure. Although maybe I should just wait until the pandemic's over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's changed a lot of, uh, yeah. of these calculations. And we'll, we're definitely going to talk about that later. So what's the difference between in payout between, say, a proceduralist versus a non-proceduralist? Are we seeing a, a big difference? Or does that get into own occupation versus non-own occupation? Yeah. I, you know, I'd say I, we hear this all the time. I'll talk to a, a pediatrician or I'll talk to a psychiatrist or I'll talk to someone who says, look, if I can't do my job, I couldn't do anything. So this is really stuff that's for proceduralists. This is for your surgical specialties and subspecialties. And I, I couldn't more wholeheartedly disagree. I would say that the rate of disability for non-proceduralists is just as high as proceduralists. And most of that is because of that that true own occupation coverage that you're trying to get. You know, out of 28 different companies in the U.S., only six of them provide that true own occupation coverage. So let me give you an example real quickly. 
let's say that you're an interventional cardiologist and you're getting paid to do obviously these procedures and you get disabled. Say you're in some type of car accident, uh, you have some type of uh, ongoing tremor, back issues, hand issues, tremor issues from that. Obviously you can't do your procedures, but maybe you can still read echoes, do consults and be a general cardiologist, or you can still uh, teach, or you can still do lots of things, work at a library, whatever. Those six companies will pay you the full benefit on top of whatever else you can find to do for work. And so let's let's flip it over now and let's say that you are a, um, let's say that you're a pediatrician. So a pediatrician, you don't have the procedures, but if you have that same car accident and you've got back issues and you've got, you know, tremor and you've got hand issues and all this stuff, you're, you're probably not going to be standing, walking around, seeing patients all day long either. It's going to affect your ability to work with the patients, to manipulate the patients, the young patients to deal with children. And so we see the same disability causing disabilities for uh, pediatricians as it does for surgeons. Now, having said that, obviously, the more fine-tuned motor skills uh, that you have to have, the more specialized or subspecialized you are, yes, of course. Uh, lesser disabilities will knock you out of being able to do your work. But the rate of disability is actually quite similar between proceduralists and non-proceduralists. I wonder if that has anything to do with the ability to cash in on your insurance, right? The fact that like, well, now I have this ongoing issue, I guess I could work, right? Like how, how do the insurance companies investigate issues like that, right? Because I'm sure there's going to be some degree of, of fraud as there is with anything, right? That's like good, how do they, yeah. how do they, like, let's say, let's say I have an injury, right? I'm looking to collect on disability. What type of investigation would I have to look forward to? I'm, yeah. You know, a, look forward, you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. you know, what would I have in what front of facing? me <laughs> yeah, that they're going to be, they're going to be investigating? Sure. So what happened? Every insurance company is a little bit different. They're, I've spoken with executives and people who work on the claim side of things for these insurance companies. Most of the time, especially if you get one of the big six, if you're getting the right kind of insurance from the right kind of company uh, for a doctor, then they're going to, uh, they're going to have you fill out a questionnaire the questionnaire is going to ask you, you know, what what happened to you, or what were you doing pre-disability? What happened to you, and what can you not do now? They're then going to send that similar form to uh, a doctor of your choice. So it can't be you; it has to be another doctor, but it could be a doctor of your choice. They're going to fill out something similar. They'll probably reach out to your employer and try to find out exactly, uh, make sure that uh, everything matches up. They may check out the codes and things of what you were doing, make sure what you say you were doing, you were really doing. But once they have verified with an employer, with a doctor of your choice uh, to back you and they have your claim there, that's that's um, sometimes that's all they really need. There are a few insurance companies who've been known to send out private investigators certain at certain times to to literally watch you to see you know if you're claiming that you have this musculoskeletal issue and you can't uh, you know you can't move around you can't lift things you can't do anything and they show up and you're out mowing your yard you know that kind of that kind of goes against what you said and so they they see it fit to do that sometimes but that's extreme I would say most of the time it's the your claim form the doctor of your choice your employer uh, they may do some background check need some medical records and things but but for the most part that's uh that's going to be it you know I I wonder myself because as physicians we are we we're highly skilled right in a very specific task and so if we're not able to do that task anymore we are able to do other tasks. So do we really need as much insurance considering that like we could end up doing like there's a job market for non-practicing physicians, right? Right. 
There's we right. We could work for an insurance company, a startup. There, there are a number of other things where, where people would be looking for our we would, yeah, yeah. We might not need to work with our hands, and we wouldn't right. be certainly starting at our current salary, right? Like, right. you know, nine years of out from residency, and I'm doing well. And well, not right now because of the current pandemic, but <laughs> sure. uh, you know that notwithstanding. You know, I can't expect to make what I'm making now if I just decide to, you know, review claims for an insurance company, right? That's not right. But I could still do somewhat well. Should that be be factored into the decision in terms of how much of my income needs to be replaced? The easy answer is yes, and the the hard answer is no. And I'll try to defend both, just because I, I think it's something you do want to consider. I think that at least hypothetically, like as you're thinking about it academically, if you're the kind of doctor who has the mindset of, hey, if I can do anything, if I can work, I'm going to work, then yeah, sure, you can take that in consideration. And so maybe you don't need to max out your policy. You know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon and you could combine two policies to get 30000 a month tax free and benefit paid to you if you get disabled, maybe you don't. Maybe you only need 15 or 20. I, I don't know. Maybe at that point in time. But here's what I'll tell you here's the reality and the boots on the ground reality with disability insurance and this is true for any insurance, is that none of us can guarantee how we will respond to a catastrophe. We just don't know. And so there are some doctors who say, hey, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a worker. I, I'm a, you know, if I get disabled and I can't do my job, I'm going to keep on working. Well, we just don't know those kinds of things. I get to the same conversation about life insurance with a husband and wife, you know, doctors who are married, and they're like, maybe I don't need as much because I'll keep working and stuff. It's like, I've seen that situation, both life and disability insurance, where a spouse passed away or got severely disabled, where the other spouse didn't want to keep working in the same capacity or even at all. Sometimes that spouse wants to stay at home and take care of the disabled uh, spouse. Or sometimes, uh, you know, after the death of a spouse, the other one decides, I, I just want to go do nonprofit work or something. You know, I mean, there's, there's all these kinds of things. So I would say, Again, depending on the stage of life that you're in, the financial condition that you're in and all of that, absolutely. Consider whether you would want to work afterwards or before, but always keep in mind, you may respond very differently after that kind of a situation, after an accident, after you know a diagnosis of a severe illness, something that's going to disable you. You may react very differently. You may want the flexibility to say, I'm taken care of financially, now what? Do I do want to do nothing for the next year? Do I want to throw myself into something? I mean, you have flexibility. If you kind of minimize things and then your cost of being disabled are higher than you're expecting and you have to go work if you want to keep up your current lifestyle and everything, it, it just kind of puts you in a bad position. So I'd say flexibility is really the key in having enough disability insurance after a disability. Something that we were, were talking about earlier was the impact of the coronavirus on on this and and actually beforehand you were talking about uh pattern and how you do so much work online you know it gives it gives um physicians busy physicians access to you guys really you know at any point right I'm between patients I can mm -hmm. start investigating what's what are appropriate coverages for me and certainly with a decrease in everything being face to face with coronavirus is it's, it's it's changing things, but how has it changed the landscape of disability insurance? Like how, what's it doing to rates? It's a great question. So first of all, I want to say that at this point in time, I believe I can say this, that every change that's happened to the disability insurance companies is in the favor of the doctors. 
And so what I mean by that is that we seems, have- But we're, we're at the front lines taking care of a very contagious illness. Why would it, why would there well, be favorable changes for, for a very vulnerable population? That's a great question. So far, I don't think if you look at it so far, I don't think statistically, there's two things that go into this. I don't think statistically current, you know, COVID-19, I don't think that it's showing up for the insurance companies as a major disabler for longer than three months. We're talking about long-term disability insurance here. So it's not showing up as something that's knocking doctors out of work for more than three months in great numbers in mass. And they honestly, if it, if someone contracts it and it kills them, I mean, that that's not their thing. They're, they don't have to pay anything out. So it, it literally is not moving the needle that much. Now, it could change rates later. So I'm not saying it won't and, it, and it's not in the works. I haven't been on the inner discussions with the executives of these companies yet. I am masking around just seeing what they're thinking. But I, it has not changed rates yet. That's, so you know about insurance companies, they can't just change rates overnight. They have to literally refile their rates with every state the Department of Insurance in every state. And in states like New York and California, that could take them a year to get the new rates approved. So it's not something they just change overnight. In fact, they very rarely change them. So they change occupation class and things like that. So just so you know, that has not happened yet and it may not happen. But what they've done is they've seen that these doctors are busy, people aren't meeting face-to-face. So even though Pattern, who does everything online, is meeting with more doctors than ever, the majority of insurance agents out there aren't meeting with people. And so these insurance companies are seeing a 20 to 30, 40% drop in their caseload. And so they're saying, we need to drum up business and we can't ask these people to go get labs and do a physical because of social distancing and because of, you know, not, not being able to interact and, and, and these offices aren't open and all that. So can't come in they, and do lunches for residency programs, bring in. Yeah. Your- so that's not happening anymore. And, and so, so what's happening is the insurance companies are saying, Hey, we're going to waive labs and physicals so no no blood draw urine specimen no no actual physical for some of the companies are going up to 7500 a month without it some of the companies have said they'll issue any amount of coverage up to their maximum amount of $20,000 a month with no labs and no physicals right now they are literally loosening the requirements to be able to get it and uh, to, you know, they're also trying to incentivize doctors to come in and, and try to get coverage. So I'll just tell you, I feel like I've been told by some people high up in the insurance world that now is a great time to try to get coverage because these insurance companies, things they might've been picky on before when they were up by 10% and everybody's, all the executives are getting their bonuses and everything's going well. Sometimes they're a little bit different during things like this where they're down 20% and they're saying, we really need to get business in the door. Here's this minor health issue we would have been picky about. Let's just say, forget about it and give this doctor a policy. So They can't um, afford to. It's a buyer's market. It is absolutely a buyer's market. So insurance isn't always time sensitive. When you're getting out of training and things like that, there's some discounts and there's always some things, but, but this really is a time sensitive place where the insurance companies, you got them right where you want them. Uh, They need to get policies in the door. They want to make it easy for you. So don't worry about labs or physicals uh, for for most policies and coverages. So that's what I'm saying. Most of, if not everything that's happened right now, as of Cinco de Mayo, as of the 5th of May, has been in the doctor's favor. So it seems that because people aren't going out to stores, a lot of people are out of work. So they don't know if there's going to be income coming in anytime soon a lot of stores have things on sale because people just aren't buying. It sounds like insurance is doing the same thing. Disability insurance, it's on sale. It's on sale right now because 
Nobody's going out and getting it. They can't have the face-to-face meetings that they've been doing for decades. So it's on sale. Go and get it. <laughs> That's yeah. That. And you know, because they can't change the rates uh, that quickly. So it's on sale in a different way. It's on sale in that it's never been more advantageous to get it because of how they do the underwriting. They're more loose with the underwriting, um, more loose on the requirements to get the coverage. So yeah, if, if, you, if you're a doctor and you've been holding out, waiting for a perfect time kind of a thing, I normally don't recommend that with insurance, but this would be the time. Absolutely. Are there other professions that end up carrying similar levels of insurance? Since, since you said, you know, doctors end up, payouts to doctors are the same rate as the general population. Are other high earning professionals carrying similar levels of insurance? That's a, that's a great question. I will say tragically, no. And the reason I say tragically is because I do believe that it would be in the best interest. Like I carry disability insurance on myself, right? And I work in an office all day long. I know that uh, I'm not out there doing procedures or fine motor skill type things. But I do know that I guess I've been in the industry long enough and I've seen enough disabilities that would have affected me that it makes sense for me and my my young family to have, for me to have disability insurance on myself. So I, I think pretty much for everyone out there, it would make sense at some point to have some disability insurance to protect you and your family, uh, or at least your finances, even if you don't have a family. But no, the answer is they don't. And I don't know, uh, the insurance industry laments that, trust me. They come to us all the time and say, hey, you guys are working with thousands of docs a year. You think you could turn this around and work with other professions? You know, we'd like to get a bigger mix. And uh, the answer so far has been, there's just not the awareness and so I guess the medical world has done a decent job in the last decade, and we've tried to play a role in that, in letting doctors know the importance of disability insurance for their overall financial plan and health, but it hasn't happened as much in other professions. So it could be because of training. It could be because of, you know, you have that extended time in training where you can learn these things or people are trying to reach you and talk to you about these things. I, I don't know what to attribute it to, but doctors are by far and away the largest market for disability insurance. That makes me concerned kind of in the other direction, right? It makes me sound, it, it makes me feel like, you know, residents in training, they're, they're, they're almost being preyed upon, right, by, by this industry that is not affecting other people because of our reputation for ignorance. But it sounds the other way that, you know, it sounds like the, the fact is that it's necessary to be able to protect your income because of what you said earlier. And mm-hmm. there just aren't large like quantities of, of other professionals in the same location, right? Like mm-hmm. you have a high earning, I don't know, say a musician, like it's, it's not, it's not like you're gonna be able to corral a bunch of them all at the same time to lecture them <laughs> on the importance of it. They're right. just going to be uh, beholden to their financial manager who, right. You know, yeah. you don't, like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, the bad thing is you're absolutely right. Absolutely, residents are preyed upon. I'd say when I started in this industry, you know, about a dozen years ago or so, uh, working exclusively with doctors, uh, I would tell doctors, hey, you know what? There's a lot of good folks out there who do what we do. And just know you got about a 50-50 shot of, of getting a hold of someone or someone getting a hold of you that knows what they're talking about. They actually work with the right products and companies and they're going to educate you and take the time to do that. It's going to go well. I'm way off that mark now. I, I honestly think it's more like 10 to 15% out there uh, who do what we do really 
know what we're talking about. We have the doctor's best interest at heart. We're willing to tell them not to get it or to go somewhere else if they could get something better. I mean, that there are very few out there. And so the rest of them are, in a sense, preying upon them because they're they're saying, hey, they're kind of easy targets. They're sitting in the training programs. We know where to reach them. And we're going to go peddle our proprietary products to them. Um, and uh, even if it's not in their best interest. And so if you look at some of the largest disability insurance companies, so the, the big six that do the right kind of true own occupation disability insurance, I'll just name them so you kind of know who they are. It's it, companies' names are Principal, Standard, Emeritus, Guardian, Mass Mutual, and Ohio National. And I will tell you that the number one uh, selling disability insurance policy in the country is not one of those six. It's another one that where they have agents all over selling the heck out of their policy. And it, to me, it's a tragedy. They're getting policies that are not, they're okay, but they are not the best policies. So, so in a sense, you're right. There's some preying upon going on, but you know, Pattern and some other folks are trying to correct that ship as fast as we can. So how do we tell the good from the bad? The, the It's got to mm. be from one of the big six or in all likelihood, it's got to be from the big six? That's a great question. So what I'd say is you always want to talk to an independent broker. And so this is important. It's a great question to ask whenever a doctor talks to someone for, about insurance. Are you an independent insurance broker? Because what that means is if, if you're an independent insurance broker, you are in between the client, the doctor, and the insurance company. And you're actually more of an advocate for the doctor to get the right policy because you honestly don't care where they go. You're getting the same payouts pretty much across the board from every company. And so you really can look to the doctor's best interest. At least you can. Not, not all of them do, but you can. If you're talking to someone who is what's called a captive agent, if they're from, even if they're from one of the big six, if you're talking to an agent and on their business card or, or you know, in their signature in their email, it says the name of an insurance company, even one of the big six, there's going to be incentivization. Even if it's, even if they're told they can sell other policies, a lot of times bonuses or trips or rewards or promotions, things like that, they'll be based on selling that company's policy. So there's always going to be some kind of conflict of interest there. So I just say, the number one way you'll keep yourself safe with insurance, any kind of insurance, is work with an independent broker who's not captive to any insurance company and who's unbiased and can act as a fiduciary, an insurance fiduciary, and look out for your best interest. How does that then work for the broker financially? Like, Because it seems, like you said, there's a conflict of interest if they're working for the insurance company because there's incentive to sell that insurance company's policy. Mm -hmm. But how does it work for an independent broker? Where does their incentive lie? So an independent broker still gets paid a commission for selling a disability policy, but it's not going to be different necessarily from company to company. There may be some sweetheart deals they have. So that's why I'm saying you got to still be careful and try to vet them. But like in our situation, we get the same kind of percentage payout from all six companies. And so when you come to someone like Pattern, and there's some others out there, when you come to us, we literally don't have a dog in the hunt. I'm from Georgia. I'll use some terminology there. We don't have a dog in the hunt. We're literally saying, hey, in fact, I used to, when I, when I, did, I did all these meetings and, and I have um, staff and people who do most of the meetings now, when I was doing these meetings, I would not look at the rates before 
the doctor saw the rates. And I would literally tell them about it. I'd say, hey, I'm going to go through and educate you on all the options, the writers, the policies, how they work, the companies, their financial strength scores. You're going to know a lot about these policies. And then I'm going to click a button and we're going to discover the rates together. So I'm not biased, kind of thinking I know who you're going to go with ahead of time. We'd see them, we'd work through, talk through, you know, well, this one looks really expensive. It's a lower rated company. Let's knock them out. This is, this is a good rate for a highly rated company and they have this feature. Let's keep them in. We'd work through it together. So yes, absolutely. We're incentivized to get a policy for that doctor, but we don't have that conflict of interest where we have to try to send them to one company over another, even if it's not in the doctor's best interest. That's really good to hear. That's really good to hear. There's one more question that I want to ask you, and it actually is possibly applies just to our female colleagues. Because I heard that pregnancy, and you mentioned before that the rates are different for males and females. And I've heard that pregnancy can be a, can make it harder to get disability insurance or at least make it more expensive. And so if you have a physician who got pregnant during residency, you know, she ends up finishing residency, becomes a higher earner after becoming an attending, and now it's harder for her to get disability insurance than one of her colleagues who may have chosen to get pregnant after residency and after they got their disability insurance or you know, one of their male colleagues who can't get pregnant. Yeah. Well, let me let me do this. I'm going to break down the scenarios because I think there's there's some truth in what you just said, and then there's a little bit of misconception. And so I and, and I totally understand this is a difficult subject to kind of approach and understand it all. So first and foremost, it's not just from pregnancy, but from complications of pregnancy, labor and delivery, even things later on like bone density and osteoporosis in women's you know 50s and 60s are more likely to have. It's it's a whole smattering of things. There are simply just more claims from women than there are for men. And so in the same way that men pay more for life insurance because on on average, men die sooner. We have shorter life expectancies. So because of that, insurance is a numbers game. And they say, hey, we're closer to a payout, potential payout with a male than we are with a female. So we got to charge the male more. With women, disability insurance companies say we're more likely to pay out a claim for a woman than for a man. So at least statistically, so we have to charge women more. So that being more expensive is not necessarily just from that, but it does play into it. That's why it's so important for women to look around and see if they can find unisex rates. The, the places where you can get it have diminished tremendously in the last 10 years, but they're still out there. We still help a lot of women get unisex rates, which brings their rates closer to the male rates. So if you're looking at rates as a female, make sure you ask if uh, that's available and uh, see, if, see if you can find a unisex rate. Now, when it comes to getting pregnant, If you're, let's say you're a resident and you get pregnant and you go through uh, normal pregnancy, labor and delivery, normal vaginal birth, everything goes well, there's no complications, there's nothing, no big deal, that's not a problem. It's not going to change the rate on your policy. It's not going to prevent you from getting a policy. In fact, you'll probably still have coverage for pregnancies, you know, where if you get disabled from a complication in pregnancy and it goes longer than three months of you being out of work, they'll start paying you. So a normal, healthy, good pregnancy is really not going to affect things very much at all. If you have a C-section, if you have complications with pregnancy, if you have something like that, or if you're even taking fertility treatments, if uh, you've had uh, a history of miscarriages, there's all kinds of things around pregnancy that if they're not exactly normal and healthy and exactly the way it's supposed to go by the book, they can and do change the policies on you. Now, What they do most of the time is they simply 
have a pregnancy exclusion. And so what that means is we see that you have a history there, some, some complications, or if you're doing fertility treatments, we know that sometimes that increases the rate of complicated pregnancies or high-risk pregnancies. So they're looking at those things. They're saying, you know what? We're still going to give you the same policy, same rate, same everything, but we're just going to exclude uh, pregnancy from coverage. And a lot of times they'll exclude pregnancy from coverage either forever, you know, as long as you have the policy, or they'll even say things like, we will add coverage back on for it if you have a, a normal vaginal delivery birth and, and everything goes well. So they can even add it back on. But if you've had a history there, and I know it's a touchy subject. I always hate to make that call and say, hey, we got a pregnancy exclusion because you've had some miscarriages. I mean, that's a, that's a dicey, hard thing for us to talk about. But that's typically what the insurance company does is they'll create a, a pregnancy exclusion uh, if you have some history there. So I don't know if that answers your question completely, but it kind of gives you some no, different actually, scenarios and yeah, how it impacts women. Flesh it out uh, much better than I than I thought um, yeah. I could understand it. And, and it, it's all based on dispassionate actuarial data. So, you know, it's, I right. think it's, it's, it's hard to hear, but that's where they, that's where they, that's where they get these numbers. If women should look for unisex policies, does that mean men should look for male, like non-unisex policies? Because <laughs> they're going to be cheaper? Yeah. That's a good question. So for women, a unisex policy, most of the time it's in conjunction with a multi-life discount. So I don't want to get into all the details, but basically anytime, most of the companies is three or more people applying at the same time, or if you're at an employer that already has a discount code set up or whatever with a certain uh, insurance company, then they're going to give you unisex rates and a multi-life discount. Uh, and that nice, an insurance, you're not a person, you're a life. So multiple people, multi-lives get together and apply at the same time. You get a multi-life discount with a unisex rate for women. So what that does is <laughs> it brings the women's rates down closer to the male rates. And then the discount below that actually gets them cheaper than a standard male rate. So it's, it's an amazing thing for women. It can save them up to 50% off the female rate. It's huge. For men, yes, it'll jump up the rate to the unisex rate, but then the discount brings it back down lower than their typical male rate. So the best price that a, a male can get typically is if you can get a male rate with a discount. But most of the time, you don't find that. Most of the time, it's if there's a discount, it's a multi-life one with unisex rates. And so whereas a female might get 40 to 50% off their rates, 35 to 50% off their rates, you might be looking at a 12% discount all in for a man because it goes up by 8% and then drops by 20, which puts them 12% below. I mean, I'm just ballparking it, but that's, that's kind of how... That was very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it is. I'm sitting here doing yeah. my hands, right? This is a podcast. Yeah. I, I do a lot of video. Basically to say that most discounts are tied in with unisex rates. And so it just is what it is. If you're a male and you want to get a 12% discount, basically that's what you're getting if you're in a unisex discounted policy. Your rate's going to bump up to unisex rates and then get a 20% discount. So it might net you a 10 or 12% savings off of male rates. So yeah, basically both of them end up at the same place as far as rates go. It's just a much bigger discount for women. I think this is where the conversation with... Matt Wiggins is going to need to take place on an individual basis. <laughs> it's much easier gonna, individually yeah, than generally. Exactly, yes. exactly. Because yes. then you'll be able to lay out why uh, is in each individual's best interest. Well, Absolutely. and it, it's been an extremely informative podcast. Is there, please go ahead and just sell us on pattern as if you haven't already with the rest of the episode. 
Where can people find you and why should all of us get our insurance through Pattern? Well, I, you know, I really appreciate having the chance to be on here. And at Pattern, we're just, we're kind of different. I mean, um, we're, we didn't start out as an insurance company and try to figure out how to sell to doctors. You know, we literally started out as wanting to help doctors in the financial world. And we were going to be, you know, we had an investment platform that we were helping doctors with investments and everything. We just realized at the end of the day, if you don't protect your, your income, you don't really protect anything. And so we just decided, let's specialize in disability and life insurance. We were already helping doctors, but let's do this. So I'd say, you know, our whole heartbeat behind what we do is we know that busy doctors don't have the time to research all the companies and figure all this out on their own. They're super smart folks. They just don't have the time to do it. And so we've made everything possible that we can to make our processes streamlined and fast and simple. I mean, you could request quotes in like five minutes. We put together um, a report side-by-side side comparing them. Within 24 hours, we can have a, a web meeting. We go through it. Within half an hour, you've learned about all your options. You know what the best one is for you. And 10 to 15 minutes later, you've applied online with one of our, um, one of our case managers and, and you've taken care of it. You've checked it off your to-do list. So I would just say if, if you don't know everything about disability insurance. You need to learn about it, but you also want someone who's going to help you do it quickly, easily online, get the right one the first time, the cheapest rates, uh, best discounts, explain everything to you. We've made it about as simple and easy as, as, as we possibly can. And it sounds like the insurance companies, because of the current pandemic, have made it even easier than they have in the past too. So you guys made it easy. They're making it easy. It sounds like really now is the time to go out. And if you don't have it already, then make sure you're covered for disability in life. Yeah, it's a great time. And you can just go to patternlife.com and uh, click on request a quote. And like I said, it only takes a few minutes to do it. But this is a, it's a great time to do it, even if you just want to learn. You know, I have some doctors who say, I don't know if I really need this. And half the time, those are the ones afterwards who say, I'm so glad we talked to you because <laughs> uh, you explained what the need was and how it works and everything. So yeah, I'd say it's a great time to check it out. And if you've been sitting on the fence, this is a, this is a buyer's market, as Brad said earlier. It's a good time to look into it. Matt Wiggins, patternlife.com. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, Brad. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This interview should not be considered personalized financial advice, and we will not be held liable for the use of any information contained within this interview. It is your responsibility to verify anything you've heard using other trusted and reputable resources.